0: This is Radio Influence, podcasting redefined.
1: Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. As always, we're here in Lawfather headquarters. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It does help us out a lot. Uh, And if we've helped you out in the past, uh, if you can look us up and give us a, a great Google review. That'd be great as well. Uh, All of those things help us out a lot. So a lot of things going on in the news right now about the Supreme Court. Uh, We have the confirmation hearings that should be starting this week for Amy Coney Barrett and uh, the Supreme Court nominee made by President Trump. So got to thinking as some of the questions have come out in terms of uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Are you going to pack the court? Uh, And so started diving into what is packing the court and, and that part is simple, right? It's adding more Supreme Court justices. And my initial thought was, why would we change the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court's been around forever and clearly it's had nine justices forever, right? Well, that is what I thought. So I started looking into the process of how you would add Supreme Court justices and, and what that would look like. And come to find out throughout the history of our country, The Supreme Court has not always had nine justices. So I want to take a little bit of a deep dive look into the history behind that and what that is and how that came about and what the nine was rooted in possibly and where the changes have been rooted in and all of those different things. And maybe a a look at what might make sense for us in 2020 and beyond So, as we get into this, one of the things that I want you all to keep in mind, and it's something that I bring up kind of fairly often as we talk about topics like these, I don't feel like the Supreme Court should have any partisan nature to it. Okay. The Supreme Court shouldn't be Democrat. It shouldn't be Republican. It should be nonpartisan. It should just be we are interpreting the Constitution and we are interpreting the laws and we are applying those things, those aspects to the laws that are created by Congress. Okay, that's it. That is my personal beliefs when we're talking about what the Supreme Court should look like. So that is where we're going to start. And here's the first interesting piece about it. Because, you know, the the Constitution, 1776, all right, for those of you... uh, who follow basketball, the 76ers, that's where their name comes from, considering it was signed in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was actually the first capital of our nation before they they decided that, hey, maybe a state shouldn't actually have the distinction of being the, the capital of the entire United States. That's how the District of Columbia, D.C., was formed. But back in 1776, and actually for you know several years, there was no Supreme Court. The Supreme Court actually doesn't come around in existence until 1789. So still a long time ago, but we did exist as a country making laws and enforcing laws for several years before the Supreme Court was created. Now, the Constitution gives Congress the ability to control the judiciary. So that's how we get to this beginning. And How do we get there we get there through an act and like a lot of acts that are out there they tell you exactly what they are they don't really hide the ball so this one was the judiciary act of 1789 and to read the exact quote from it as to how this was created being enacted by the senate and house of representatives of the united states of america in congress assembled that the Supreme Court of the United States shall consist of a chief justice and five associate justices, any four of whom shall be a quorum and shall hold annually at the seat of government two sessions, the one commencing the first Monday of February and the other the first Monday of August. So we've come a long way since then. So if we look at where we are right now as we stand in present day, we have one chief justice and eight uh, associate justices, although we just call them justices and then the chief justice is the chief justice, okay? So that is how the, Supre- the Supreme Court got its start, six justices in 1789. Now, we're going to take a little look at history here. We're going to have a little history lesson and look at what went on in the 17 and 1800s that got us to where we are today. And some of it may have been political wrangling. Some of it was just a, a mere fact of the country growing. So it wasn't long that the Supreme Court had six justices. Now, let's think about this for just a second here. If you have six justices, so your uh, your chief justice does still provide a vote. So I know the way it's worded, it, it may make it sound as though you have four and those, uh, those. Uh, excuse me, you had five and those five are the only ones that vote. No, you, the chief justice actually votes as well. So there were six voting members of the Supreme Court back when it was started in 1789. Well, what happens when you have an even number and you have really difficult topics? Uh, you can sometimes have a tie. And I don't know what they did in the event of a tie. I don't know how you break the tie of the Supreme Court, considering the Supreme Court Per the Constitution, there can only be one. So they are the Supreme Court of the land. There is no court higher. So there's nobody else to break the tie. Not sure how they did that. Maybe they flipped a coin or, yeah, who knows what they did. But 1801, President John Adams reduced the number of justices to five. Now, what his rationale was behind that, we'd have to do a deep dive look in the, in the history books. But I think it makes sense because now you could have a three to two vote and you have a winner on one side. Then President Thomas Jefferson comes in, he adds the sixth back. So here we are, we're back to six, all right? And then, uh, and this was sometime between 1801 and 1807. So in this short lifetime of the Supreme Court, they've gone from six to five, back to six. And then in 1807, a, a seventh federal court circuit is added, Okay, so if we look, take a step back and look prior to 1807, there were six circuits for the for the federal courts. So the circuits make up a region. Okay, so you have a region and a region makes up a circuit, rather. And it's it's all the courts within that. So if you have an appeal in Florida, let's say, you're not going to be in a circuit in California because you're gonna want A, you'd have too many cases if everything just was all over the place. You'd have no uniformity. So you get uniformity within circuits. And what happens, one of the ways cases get to the Supreme Court is say, the first circuit rules one way on an appellate decision. And you know the, the Seventh Circuit rules a different way on essentially the same question. That question can then be certified and brought to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court can say, hey, First, you were right. Hey, seventh, you were right. Or hey, maybe neither of you were right. And this is the actual interpretation. So that is one way that cases can get to the Supreme Court. So seemingly making sense following the amount of circuits. So prior to 1807, there were six circuits and six justices. Well, a seventh circuit is added and President Jefferson adds a seventh justice. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Circuits, justices, make them the same. And uh, that's where we went from there. And then if we look, the next time there are justices added is 1837, when President Andrew Jackson comes in. And guess what? Two more federal circuits are added. So now we're up to nine. Okay, keeping track at home here. We're at nine circuits. They add two more justices, nine justices. Okay, we're, we're following a really easy pattern here. Well, then we have this little thing that pops up called the Civil War. And for a short period of time, there was a 10th circuit added. And you know, consequently, a 10th justice was added. But we're right back to an even number, five and five, when you have decisions that can be tied, and what do you do with a tie? And then Civil war happens, civil war ends, justice is brought back down to seven, and then Congress gets involved. Congress goes to say, hey, basically, let's get some uniformity in this. Let's put this all to bed. And uh, there was probably some other provisions within this, within this act. I know there are other provisions within this act, but there was the new Judiciary Act, which was 1869. <laughs> so a long time ago, we have the new Judiciary Act. And... That set the number of justices back to nine. Now, if we take a look, President Theodore Roosevelt comes in and he's in office and he wants to add six justices. That would bring us to 15. That'd be a lot of justices. And that would have been a huge swing, right? You're talking about a court that had nine, and then we're going to add more than half, you know, more than 50% more onto that by adding six more justices that would have been a lot uh, ultimately that failed so we were left with nine so that is the the little history part of it so let's look at what we have going on here today which this week as i mentioned the confirmation hearings are occurring for uh, our latest supreme court nominee and from all all readings, all listening to quotes of hers and other things. She seems to be uh, what's known as a strict constructionist. She wants to follow the law basically. Uh, the letter of the law is what controls, okay? Not necessarily the spirit of the law. Uh, I, I would say I fall in that same category. I want to follow the words on the paper, uh, not necessarily always what the, you know, vague ambu- ambiguity can become from trying to interpret what certain things are. I want to know, okay, I can read this. I understand this. This is what it means. So that is what her point of view is. And I don't necessarily think that is a Democrat or Republican point of view. I think that just is a legal point of view. And as I've said over and over, I think the Supreme Court should be based in the law side of things and not a partisan side of things. And I know they tackle partisan issues. They absolutely do. However, okay, they should be the one constant that is not partisan whatsoever. Okay, because with those decisions, I don't necessarily care what the Democrats have to say. I don't care what the Republicans have to say. I care about what the Constitution says and what the law says and the interpretation of those things. And I think that's where things need to go and that's where things need to be. Um, so that's that's my opinion on that. And on the other side of the house here, we have Biden and Harris who have said, well, well I said they're not going to they're not going to answer the question. Uh, but in doing some reading the concept of the Democrats packing what what's being called packing the Supreme Court in 2021, if there is a Democrat elected president, there's actually been ramblings of this for the past couple of years because I found Senator Rubio had tried to introduce legislation that would be an absolute cap on the Supreme Court justices at nine. All right. So this concept has been floating around. Now, I, I know recently President Biden said that the voters... Don't get to know what his stance is on packing the court. Uh, you know, I think that is probably a little bit problematic from a voter standpoint, because if I'm voting, I want to know. I want to know what your standpoint is. And I want to know, maybe I want to know why, right? Maybe I want to know why you want to add a 10th or an 11th or a 12th. Or if we look back at uh, the Roosevelt days, six justices, right? I kind of want to know these things. I think they're really important things to know because the Supreme Court really has the ability to shape the country. So, you know, when we look at that and we go, okay, well, we don't really know what you're going to do. We can make some assumptions, right? You know, if you're not going to answer, right? Anything other than a no is a yes type of, type of thing. And they have both failed to come out and actually say no, um, so that they're not going to pack the court. So, you know, take that kind of concept and that turns that into a yes. Who knows? That's remained to be seen. But let's look at one thing here. Because if we follow the course of history, the course of history tells us that the Supreme Court follows the amount of judicial circuits, right? We've seen that over and over in history as we looked at things. We went from six to five to seven to nine to 10 back to nine, okay? Well, guess what? We have 11 federal judicial circuits right now, and we have nine justices. To me... It only makes sense that we have 11 justices to follow the amount of circuits. But they don't ask me to make these decisions. I'm just reporting the news, if you will. Uh, But in my opinion, my humble opinion, uh, I I would support the adding of two justices to match the circuits. And and I don't really care whether it's President Trump in office or Vice President uh, Biden in office. I think that it should be 11 because... History has told us matching the circuits works, okay? Or at least it gives us a baseline. It gives us something to follow so that we don't have this partisan fight back and forth because 11 is 11, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're far left or far right, the number 11 is the number 11. And that, I think, is where the court should end up. That is where I feel like the court should be. So in all of this, I did find a little interesting tidbit. And as much as I try to make the show here as apolitical as possible, sometimes, especially in debate land, uh, things come up and things are said that may not match what history shows. And so this is not an indictment on anybody other than just saying that sometimes Things aren't exactly what they seem. And so those of you who followed the vice presidential debate and maybe read the news afterwards, heard from uh, Kamala Harris, hey, President Lincoln, honest Abe, he had the opportunity to to nominate a justice to his Supreme Court during the election. And he chose not to because, well, he was honest Abe. That was the narrative that was spun on it. However, a little trip down history land tells us that that really wasn't the case. Yes, he, he did not add a Supreme Court justice. So let's just take a look and, and let's see where this thing falls. But I, I think that there was a little skewing of history in this. So let's look. So there was Justice Taney, and he has kind of been uh, notorious Uh, Fairly recently in the news, he had, uh, I believe, a statue somewhere in DC. It may have even been in the White House. And it was removed because, look, I I don't know the guy. I don't know any of his decisions other than the one. And being that we are in uh, 2020, the decision is a little nonsensical because we know uh, a lot different now than we did then. But Justice Tanney was the opinion writer of the Dred Scott case. Uh, Dred Scott's a case that is pretty well known in the law school books. Uh, I can't say I was a, an avid uh, constitutional law and, and this kind of law student when I was in school. However, uh, heard of the Dred Scott case. So I had to look up a little bit and, and truly understand what the Dred Scott case was and what it is and what it stood for. And in his opinion... Uh, which was actually the controlling opinion, right? It wasn't the dissent. The dissent being the side that loses, and the opinion being the side that that wins. Justice Taney's decision stated black people were inferior and had no rights. Okay, that's what it said. I don't agree with that. I don't think you're gonna find anybody in 2020 that agrees with that. I, maybe I, you, you might. I I don't care to know these people that might share that thought. I don't. Um, But anyway, uh, Justice Taney's death occurred while Lincoln was doing two things. One, he was campaigning for president. And two, we had this little thing, the Civil War. We mentioned it a little bit ago. Kind of a big piece of history. Lincoln played, you know, kind of a tiny, huge role in the Civil War. So Justice Taney dies during this time period. And... Lincoln has some decisions to make, and we're, we're dealing with a time that there was no Twitter, there was no social media, okay? Um, you can pick up the phone, you can pick up your cell phone and call somebody. So there was a lot different, there was no email, right? So there was no quick way to get messages back and forth. So Lincoln waited to make a nomination. And it is wholly true that Lincoln waited until after he was elected president, to make his nomination, okay? But let's keep in mind a couple of things. Number one, the election happens, and the president doesn't officially take office once the election happens until a couple months later, right? So let's just play out the scenario. Let's bring it into, real, into our current times for the second. If Joe Biden wins the presidential election, President Trump is still our president until January, okay? Conversely, if President Trump wins... His first term doesn't end until January. His second term doesn't begin until January, okay? So kind of a small nuance, but I think it gets lost in the mix of of what is there. So like I said, if Joe Biden wins in November, I believe uh, the date is November 3rd this year. On November 4th, he's not president of the United States. <laughs> president Trump is. So that's just how it works. Um, and it's a small nuance, but I think it's very important. Because if we go back to Abe Lincoln, he asked the public to give him ideas for nominations. Well, when you don't have computers, cell phones, and, you know, communications that we have today, you got to wait a little bit. So he puts this out there and has to get this information back via mail. Okay. And he got a lot of nominations in via mail. People who wanted to be named to the, to the Supreme Court. Now also, let's look at another piece. The Senate was out of session until after the election. So Justice Taney dies, Senate's out of, out of session. Okay, meaning that they're not working. They're not there. There's no vote that can happen. And in order to appoint a Supreme Court justice, the president nominates and the Senate confirms. So Lincoln could go in and go, here's my nomination. Awesome, great. It just sits there till after the election. So he used it to his advantage. And actually, it was pretty smart. There was a rival in the presidential race. Now, keep in mind also this is President Lincoln's bid for re-election. Okay, so he was he was already in office, and this is his re-election bid. But a guy who tried to run against him, same party, okay, had tried to run against him the first time and lost. Salmon Chase was a guy that was looking at potentially running again, and he also, though, was one of the people who mailed in and said. I want the Supreme Court justice position. So, this is where it gets really smart. Lincoln goes, "Okay, I'm not going to make a decision, but I want you, Chase. Okay, but I'm not making a decision yet. But here's what you need to do for me." And Chase was a politician in the Midwest, uh, I believe Ohio. And Lincoln gets Trump. Uh, excuse me, Lincoln gets Chase to uh, to campaign for him in the Midwest. So Lincoln has then taken and gone, Okay, here's my political rival. I don't want to lose votes to him. I don't want to have a a chance of losing. I want the best chance of winning. So rather than making a nomination to the Supreme Court right now where it can't go anywhere because the Senate can't confirm, right, I'm going to use this to my advantage. I am going to use Chase to campaign for me. And that's exactly what he did campaign. uh, Chase campaigned for Lincoln. Lincoln won the, the re-election, and then Congress, uh, I believe a month later, comes back in session. The day after, the Senate starts their new session. Basically, they go back to work, right? Their break is over. They're working again. Lincoln makes his nomination, and it is Salmon Chase. So that is how the Lincoln thing played out. It wasn't the, oh, golly gee, it's not right for me during an election to nominate a supreme court justice when one justice has died no it was purely a political move uh, that seemingly helped his campaign and won him re-election and i'll tell you what who knows where we would have been if uh, lincoln didn't win re-election uh, especially during kind of a tumultuous time that that this was all occurring and i mean there's actually no evidence as we look at the history books to show that, let's say Lincoln had lost, there's no information to show that he would not have made a nomination, okay? So there is a possibility that if Lincoln lost, he would have made a nomination when Senate came back into session in December. So kind of an interesting piece of history to look at and kind of ties in the whole Supreme Court issue and everything else. So that is where, where we are with the Supreme Court. So let's take a look and change gears just a little bit Let's look at a listener question. And it's not one specific listener question, but it is a question that I get asked, I don't know, seven or eight times a week uh, during my day job, which is personal injury attorney, not a uh, constitutional law guru, which by I no means am, um, and political Supreme Court breakdowner, okay? And making up words as we go here that probably don't exist in the dictionary. But anyway, that said, This question comes up several times a week. And it's what is my car crash case worth? And and I get that. And it's, and I understand why people want to know. And it's a really difficult question to answer because we come back to like most answers in the legal world. And you'll find this, you know, in law school. And if you ever talk to an attorney, they'll ask you a question and they'll go, It depends. Not sure. Could be this could be that okay and all of those are correct answers because well there's a lot of different variables to the equation so here's how i answer that what is my case worth well number one your crash happened two days ago i don't know what your case is worth yet okay because here is what the foundation of your case is the foundation of your case is your medical bills and Your medical bills build that foundation. They're the largest piece of damages, okay, what you're owed is, right? For the most part, you're going to have more medical bills than you will anything else. And it's black and white. Your bills are your bills, right? The hospital charged you $10,000. That's a real $10,000, right? The other pieces, when we talk about, let's say, pain and suffering, it's a little bit harder to go, okay, this is what your pain and suffering is because, If we look at how jury trials work and how they happen, you could have three different juries look at the same same facts and the same case and same everything and give differing amounts for pain and suffering, okay? Are they going to most likely give the same credit for the medical bills? Most likely, okay? There could be some changes to that, but I don't think you would see wholesale differences between the two, and that would come up if... uh, the defense said, oh, these bills were too egregiously high and, and billing extra experts were brought in. But if everybody kind of agrees that this was reasonable on the plaintiffs and the defense side, you're probably not going to see a difference there. So really difficult to tell at, at the outset what the value of the case is. But our foundation is the medical bills. So how hurt you are, plus what you go and get for medical care and medical treatment, plus any lost wages okay the medical bills are the biggest lost wages are always a little bit smaller but those two pieces really build the foundation so it's really impossible to give a true and accurate value of your case until you're through with your medical treatment and then we can look at here's a range of values right and it all depends there's several different factors right how bad the crash was what your prior medical history is um the liability in the case were you 100 percent not at fault in other words, was the other person 100% at fault? Is there some shared fault? Okay. A lot of different factors, a lot of different pieces to the puzzle. And we look at all of that. And if you have more questions on that or have any question, 855 Law Father or lawfather at tampalawfather.com will get you into this show and we'll answer the questions and help you out. That said, that is the show for today. As always, check us out on social media instagram facebook uh not so much on twitter okay a little bit here and there but facebook and instagram are our main social media parts so check us out there this is the law father law father out.
0: this is an mj morning show podcast quick fix on radio influence Guys, the MJ Morning Show is back. Froggy, how did it feel? It, it was a very fun morning. Went by very fast, though. I forgot how fast those mornings go by when yeah. you're doing a show like that. Four hours, like, boom! And, Fester, any observations on our first day back with the MJ Morning Show? A day that many people thought was never going to happen. The number one email or message that I got on Twitter or Instagram was, I never thought this day would come. The other one was, what the hell took you guys so long? This is incredible. Mm. Oh, another one, my dreams have come true. There's like this series. I've had so many emails, it's going to take me days to try to respond to folks if I can even find the time to do it. But it really is amazing. The outpouring, we had great phone calls today on the air. The email, my social media has exploded. And people are like, I can't believe you're back. This is absolutely amazing. Folks, this is not a COVID-19 hallucination. This is the real deal. The MJ Morning Show podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, MJMorningShow.com, and RadioInfluence.com.